let us remember that we are in the presence of our Lord, who loves us and does all things for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Saint Joseph, you who filled by God's grace with the righteousness of our Lord, always did in great humility and fidelity the will of our Heavenly Father. You were entrusted by our Heavenly Father to safeguard and protect the Blessed Mother and our Lord Jesus Christ. You were entrusted by the Heavenly Father to bring them to the people of Egypt and then to bring them back to those that God would minister to in his ministry to bring about the salvation of souls. You in your great humility remain silent so that our Blessed Mother may worthily present our Lord to all the people of the world. We trust you as our Lord trusts you. And in trusting you, we ask you to watch over us this night. Protect us from the snares and the attacks of the adversary. Keep us safe in our journey throughout life to better know and love our Lord. And bring to us, as you have in the past, our Blessed Mother and our Lord, that by your intercession and guidance we may come to better know and love our Lady and God, and like you, faithfully and humbly serve as his love for others. And so we pray. Remember, O most chaste spouse of the Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto you, my spiritual father, and beg your protection. O foster father of the Redeemer, despise not my petitions, but in your goodness, hear and answer me, and lead me to know and love my Lady and my Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, that's it. I hope you guys have a blessed night. If I may, two preliminary points. The first is the definition of heresy and the distinction thereof. There are two types of heresy, and you know you're in for a great time when the priest is starting to talk about with heresy. The first is material heresy. So I know the truth, or I intend to know the truth, and I intend to proclaim and live the truth, but by my ignorance, by my negligence, by my just mistake, I accidentally say or proclaim something that is contrary. Hey, I, I accidentally say that there's 11 commandments when there's 10. I accidentally say that Star Wars Episode 6 is the best of the Star Wars movies when in truth it's five, and that's dogma. That's not up for dispute. Formal heresy is when I know the truth and intentionally proclaim its opposite. I know that Jesus is truly divine and man, the second person in the Trinity, and I formally proclaim that he's just some guy. I know that Star Wars Episode 5 is the greatest Star Wars peak Star Wars will ever get, and instead I tell you Episode 8 is the best, which is an abomination unto the Lord and proof that Jesus needed the cross for our salvation. I clarify this so that if I make a mistake and I say something that is in error, 
please do me the favor of treating it as material heresy and not formal. It is my fallibility, not my intention to deceive. If there's a question tonight of, well, Father Klein said this, but Holy Mother Church says this, who do I listen to? Always and forever, Holy Mother Church. Do not ever put me above God's bride. Point two, not at all an exhaustible list, but I would just like to share with you a few people that will, through their writings, through their works, through their talks, can help us to have a better understanding, knowledge, and love of Our Lady and Our Lord. And then for you of your own volition and time with our Lord to take that up as part of your spiritual reading, prayer, and life. Uh, Dr. Brant Petrie, Dr. Scott Hahn, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, St. Louis de Montfort, Father Donald Calloway, Dr. Lawrence Feingold, and of course, both Pope, St. Pope, nope, did that wrong, Pope St. Paul, John Paul II, and Pope Benedict XVI, and the many writings of our church through the apostolic letters, encyclicals, and the like. Again, not at all exhaustive, but wonderful resources and wonderful individuals who share their knowledge and their love and their relation with Our Lady and Our Lord for us to learn from, grow from, and all the like. Which leads then to the conversation of the night. I've been asked, and really, it's my failing. I need to start saying this is what I'm going to talk about instead of letting people choose for me, because then it's just added scramble of like, I don't know what any of that is about, and trying to fake it through the whole night. The talk I've been asked to, to give is one on being a servant and a spiritual warrior for Our Lady and Our Lord. And the list of which to read from and learn from, I think, is a very good segue into that. Because we can have a temptation, I can have a temptation to treat our Lord like he's geography and to treat our lady like she's mathematics. They're a subject to know and to master and to have a dominion over. When in truth, they're people. That's a person, the second person in the most holy trinity. And all that we've been given to know about our God is to help us know them as people, to know our Lord in an intimate, personal way, to know Our Lady as mother, and to be in a relationship between us, the child, and her, our mother. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, wonderfully divided into four segments, the last of which is on prayer. So if you have any questions or desires of, hey, how can I grow in my prayer life? Allah, the free resource of the Catechism. And when we look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the very first definition that it gives with regards to prayer is a personal and vital relationship with our Lord. All prayer, all sacraments, all commands and doctrines, all teachings, the infinite beauty of the Mass, all is founded in, flows from, and leads back to relationship with God. And when we hear the call to be his servant, or we hear the call to be a warrior, we can very easily forget that. Our adversary, 
is a jerk, but he's clever like a serpent. And he will at times be a wrecking ball that just bludgeons us in the attempt to hope to get us to sin. But sometimes he'll take the more subtle approach. And kind of like when you're going through space, if you're off but just the fraction of a degree with your spaceship, by the time you try and reach Pluto, you have missed it by light years. He'll try and do the same for us. And he'll try and get that starting point to just oh so subtly be off. So even though our intentions are good, and our efforts are good, because we started in the wrong vector, we find we've missed the destination. And we so often look at the commands of God and the prayers we're asked to do as either simply work or simply responsibility. I have to do it because I'm obliged or I know I'm supposed to do it because it's good for me. Kind of like eating our vegetables. I guess I have to even though I'd really like the chocolate chip cookie. The problem with either of these approaches, if our faith is simply and only work, it is one more task that needs doing in a life full of tasks that need doing. And then consequently, so is he. I'm just here to get this done so I can get on to the next thing I need to get done. And then faith is empty. It's a chore that we begrudge and loathe to do. I just have to go to the mass because I'm obliged and then I can really do what I want to do and that's watch the Chiefs just destroy the Cardinals. Proof of God's divine love. He's a Kansas City Chiefs fan. It's in the Our Father. Thy kingdom come clearly means Chiefs kingdom. No other interpretation. If the faith is merely obligation, a responsibility that we take on, eventually it exhausts and it wears us down to the point of submission and desolation because then our belief is I am always working and always have to work to be perfect at this job, at this task, at this responsibility. The core of our entire faith is love. The core of everything we're asked to do and commanded to do is love. He tells us himself. In scripture, our Lord, very clearly, over and over again, he makes a point, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those who keep my commandments are my mothers, my brothers, my sisters, my mailman. I may be paraphrasing with that last one. In John's first letter, he makes a point of saying that anyone who says they know and love our Lord but do not keep his commands are a liar. But anyone who keeps his commands and follows the will of God knows him, loves him, and is in union with him. Every time God gives context for fidelity, for faith, for command, for the covenant, it is always in the sense of familial relation. God the Father throughout all of the Old Testament over and over and over again frames it in the context of I am your groom 
And you, my chosen people, you're my bride. And your infidelity to the covenant is infidelity to me in our matrimonial relationship. Jesus himself, the church, is his bride. I am the bridegroom. This is my spouse. Over and over, we hear from God the context of how we are meant to approach prayer and the faith is always, first and foremost, leads through and comes back to loving relation with God and neighbor. The greatest first two commandments, inseparable thereof. And he drives the point home when he teaches us to pray. Because the prayer he teaches us is our Father. Every time we pray, no matter what the prayer is, it is always in the context of me, the child, going to my Father. At the cross, when he is agonizing for breath, he gives to the beloved disciple his mother as our own. His context is family. When we look at the beauty of the family, matrimony, kids, all the like, there is not in that merit, or in the sense of it, in a Pelagian sense, don't, don't correct me there, good father, it's humility. If we think love has to be earned, then we think the one we're trying to learn love can be earned. If we think that love comes simply by my own power or accomplishment, we think the one we're loving is one that I have accomplished and won. When you come at the foot of the cross, at the altar, before God and church and man, to avow yourself to your bride and your groom, are you looking at them and going, ha ha, I earned you. I put the, the bait on the hook, cast it out, and look what I reeled in. Or hey, I have so many Dave and Buster's tickets, as many as I will ever need, and I was able to buy you. I don't, I can't, I never will. Instead, it is with tears in our eyes going, I don't deserve you. And I could live a million lifetimes and do an infinite number of good, and I will never deserve you. But because you love me, you have decided to gift yourself to me and make the fullness of all you are and who you are as a gift of love to me in the good and the bad all the days of our life. And so in gratitude and humility, I vow to do the same for you and to make of myself a full gift of myself for you in the good and the bad. I make myself your servant because I love you. That's the call. We are not calling to be the servant and the spiritual warrior in the sense of prideful accomplishment or militant machine perfection like we're terminators with the designed functionality and go out thereof. It is a result of love. It is a response of love, 
of a love that has freely been given. And in our just gratitude for he who is love and the love he gives, how can we not want to return it? When you look at your children, there is, with a factual uh, observation, an acknowledgement of the great disparity between you and them. I'm older, I'm smarter, I'm more accomplished, I am more capable. I'm the one that's actually paying for all the groceries and the home and, the, and everything, like I'm the breadwinner of this. What do you contribute, child of mine, aside from watching Batman cartoons, which by the way, you really should do. Bruce Tim, Paul Denny, the 1990s Batman the Animated Series, best rendition of the character, that's your spiritual homework, watch it with God. There's an acknowledgement of they are objectively, respectively, objectively, inferior. What do you as parents do? For love of my child, though I am the greater, I make myself your servant. I feed you, I nourish you, I clothe you, I care for you when you're sick, I educate you, I bring you to friends and family, I have my entire life devoted to and revolving around you. Everything I am and everything I do is now done for you because I love you. That's the invitation of faith. So our pursuit, our desire to be a servant and a warrior is a product of love. And it can only come from love. The moment we approach persons and relationships from a place of pride is the moment we degrade them. The moment we look at them as things that we can earn and own and merit. Not people who have a dignity that is so beautifully infinite it is our privilege to love, who have a worth that is so eternally, con uh, confoundingly beautiful that God himself, who is eternal, pays for us in his blood with the infinity sign in the check he writes to save our souls. It's gift. It is all gift. And God gives us himself and our mother to drive the point home so that when we hear those commands of God, when we receive those doctrines, those teachings, when we have those duties and those responsibilities and that drive to follow his holy will, it is done as a child who is so grateful for the love of a parent. How can I show you and return it to you? It's not going to be enough. It's not going to be what you deserve but it's all I am and it's yours. Two points to drive this home thereof. In scripture, in the Gospel of John, which no offense to the other three, but of the present is my favorite because of its focus on the Eucharist and the Last Supper. Jesus is at table. They've just finished the Pizza Hut pizza they've ordered, which is objectively better than Papa John's, no offense, but it's true. And he looks at them 
In the very next chapter, after the 17th, we go into the 18th, the agony in the garden. So Jesus knows what's coming. And right before it is time to go to pray and to suffer and to fight for us, he looks at his apostles. And we know God. We know he's omnipotent. So we know, as we've seen in the garden, what he sees is not just them. He sees their sins. He sees Peter, who's going to deny him. He sees all but the beloved who will betray him and abandon him and leave him on his darkest hour. He sees every sin they have done, every sin they will do, and he knows the entire weight of it. And he sees us. He sees us whom he is going to the cross for who have not yet come into this world. And he sees how we are complicit in his murder. And every sin we have done and every way we have nailed him to the cross. And he says, thank you. He looks to God the Father and says, Father, they are your gift to me. And he says, thank you for the opportunity to suffer and die for us. The word Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. It is not just his thanksgiving to God, his Father. It is also, first and second commandment, his thanksgiving for us. We have a God who loves us so much that when it comes time to fight for us and serve us, he sees it as a gift worth being thankful for to be crucified. That is the magnitude of his love. That's the goal. That is what we seek to emulate, to respond to, to return, to live in, in this life and for eternity. Our Blessed Mother is by God's grace the one person on this earth who has beautifully, immaculately loved God and never sinned against him, who has never by her volition or will done anything to displease him or work against him. She goes to the temple to present her son, as you're supposed to do, to offer sacrifice for the gift of her son, to consecrate him to God the Father. There's this crazy, kooky old guy named Simeon who has the Holy Spirit resting upon him. And he comes to Mary and Joseph and takes Jesus from their hands and rejoices. I can at last die happy because I have seen the Messiah. I have seen the face of the Savior. I can go home. That is fantastic news to hear. How, how could you not rejoice as a mother or a father to hear that said about your son? And then he turns to mom and says, your son will be a sign of contradiction to reveal the hearts of many. And you, your heart, a sword will pierce. Your son will suffer and die for the hearts of many. And you're going to share in it. You're going to share in it so greatly and so beautifully, it will be as if a scimitar, a giant curved monster of a sword, cleaves your heart in two. That's what you got coming. 
And Mary does not turn to Joseph and be like, he's yours now, I did the hard part, peace. She goes to the temple and makes her presentation, offers it all to God, continues to live out her fiat. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. And we read in scripture that when his time has come, she is standing at the foot of the cross. She is the co-redemptress and the co-mediatrix of our salvation and all grace. And she does not do that because this is a chore and man, I have to do it. And she doesn't do it out of mere obligation. She loves her son so much, she emulates his thanksgiving and sees it as a gift to do so for the glory of God and the salvation of us who kill her son. That is the love of Mary. That is the love of our Lord. And that's the invitation. Many times, not to break the seal of confession, and I love that every time I say that, the immediate thought is, he's going to break the seal of confession. No, I don't want to be excommunicated. But many times I've been asked, inside confession, outside confession, how do we know when we have committed a grave mortal sin in missing mass? How do I know that the missing of mass is this grave mortal thing that, you know, condemn me if I've done it but once through my own will and volition? Which, and again, to be fair, there's some unmerited questions behind that because, hey, I can gather in community with the faithful in infinite number of ways, like Arrowhead Stadium when I'm really praying for the chiefs. I can pray to God in infinite number of ways. I can be with our Lord in infinite number of ways. Like, I don't really have to do what I do at Mass to be able to do that with other people. So why is missing this so grave? Aside from the fact that, you know, third commandment and obedience and humility to our Lord. And it comes from examining what is the Mass. And that it's, I hate to say lowest, but for lack of a better term, lowest level. It's a feast. It is a feast where our Father, who so loves his children, feeds us, nourishes us, gives us he who is the bread of life. For our sake, we come to our Lord's dinner table to be fed. He in the Word, He in the Eucharist, all the grace outpoured. And so, like we would understand how it would be detrimental to skip meals, detrimental to skip the greatest meal. At its highest level, the Mass is a sacrifice. It is the sacrifice, the one true sacrifice of our Lord on the cross at Golgotha offered to our Father in eternal heaven for the salvation of souls. And by God's grace and the Spirit, we, through sacramental signs, are allowed to be made present at that one true sacrifice. We get to be at Calvary with all the saints and all the angels and all the faithful of every Mass. We by God's grace, get to stand at the foot of the cross and not just praise and worship him for his great love for us, 
offer ourselves to that cross for the glory of God, for the love of God, and the salvation of souls. And so to choose to miss Mass, to avoid Mass, to, hey, I want to sleep in and read my comic books, not that I've ever done that, is to choose to reject the cross and the love poured out thereof. That can get kind of weighty for us, though, kind of hard to reconcile. So we look then to what leads up to it. The Mass is a wedding. It is the wedding banquet where we, like at a wedding, get to come before the altar and receive the matrimonial love of our groom, who for love of us makes of himself a full gift poured out for us for our sake. Him in the Word, Him in the Eucharist, every grace and pouring forth. And like at a wedding, we not only get to humbly receive Him, the totality of Him, body, blood, soul, divinity, we get to say yes and give ourselves back. When we come to the altar to receive the Eucharist, we say amen for two reasons. One, we're proclaiming our belief in our faith. Amen. Yes, I believe that is truly Jesus, body, blood, soul, divinity. It's one of the reasons we don't have our Protestant brothers and sisters or non-Catholics come up to receive our Lord, because it'd be asking them to lie. They don't believe. So it's an amen, it's an expression, a proclamation, a definition of faith. I believe firmly that is our Lord. And I am receiving our Lord, body, blood, soul, divinity. It is also an amen of matrimony. Our I do. I say yes to you, Jesus. And I say yes to receiving you and yes to giving myself to you. All that I am is yours. Imagine for a moment, hypothetically, as one who has been guilty of this in the past and is making up for it still, imagine it's your wedding day and you choose not to go because you're tired, because you're traveling, because you'd rather watch cartoons, because you're going to go hang out with friends, or you know what, I'll just catch it online. Imagine the hurt that conveys to your spouse. We've known about this wedding day for a year plus. We've been dating for years total. We knew it. It was in the calendar. There's no surprise here. And you chose not to come. And the implication of that is not just I've rejected you on one day, because what flows from a wedding? A relationship. A relationship of matrimony, where we share our whole lives together till death do us part. And if I've said no to the marriage, I've said no to the relationship. If I've said no to the marriage, I have rejected the one I'm supposed to be in relationship with. 
And so when we're examining ourselves on how well we're keeping that third commandment, the context is always, are we approaching it like it's our wedding? And are we preparing for it and prioritizing it like it's our wedding? That's why the Lord's day is so beautiful. Because what does a bride and groom do the entirety of the day of their wedding? Everything is relationship. The prep work, getting into it, the marriage itself, the reception and the, and the party afterwards, and then the just passing out exhausted when it's all done. I had two friends of mine, then they got married. They were so tired by the end of it, they went through the McDonald's drive through still like, you know, suit and dress or whatever, had McDonald's, and then just crashed watching TV. But the whole day is about each other. And the whole day is about our relationship with everyone else who has come to support our relationship with each other. So it's each other and family and friends. And everything we're doing is about that relationship. So too is the Lord's day. And if faith for me is work, or faith for me is obligation, then the moment the work is done, I did my time peace and now I'm going to go do what I want to do. Could you imagine looking at your husband or your wife and going, Haha, we're married. I'll see you next Sunday. I'm going to go watch the game. The whole day is supposed to be for them and with them. And so the whole day of the Lord's day is, God, let's rest together. And I give it to you. God, let's watch football together. And I give it to you. Let's be with my friends and my family. Let's help those that are in need. Let's do the work that we need to be doing on this day. Let's care for the sick, the needy, and the poor, and what have you. But the whole of the day, God, is for you and with you, for me to receive you and give myself back. And then like a wedding, may this first day of the week help me to have the whole week before you and in you and offered to you and with you as we do in matrimony. If this is the goal, does it not then make sense that she who is the greatest saint and immaculate in her love, a mother and a wife, and does it not then make sense that the one he gives above all to teach us and lead us in how to love and live in that love, we are to receive as our mother the beauty of mom is that she leads us to her son always and forever. Everything starts, goes through, and ends with God. And proper Marian devotion never deviates from that. Case in point, the visitation. Our Blessed Mother has just received the most amazing of news. The Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl in 54 and 4. She's like, I don't know who that is yet, but it's God's favorite team, so I rejoice in that. And then she hears, hey, your cousin Elizabeth, who really wasn't ever expecting to be able to have kids, she's pregnant. And she's in her sixth month. And she has Mary, has just been told, mom has just been told, 
Hail, full of grace, you're without sin. God wants you to be the mother of God. No one's topping that but God. You have a primacy above all people. And the first thing she does is she runs to the country to make herself a servant, the handmaid, to someone who is sinful, to someone who is not the mother of God, to someone who does not share in the honors that are due particularly to Mary, to someone who is elderly and is struggling through the pains that come from being pregnant. And she waits on her, hand and foot, because she loves her. And what does Elizabeth say when Mary comes? I hope you brought chili dogs. I really have a hankering for them for some reason. How blessed am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me. And the Holy Spirit descends upon Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And the, the, John the Baptist, the greatest prophet preleading to our Lord, leaps for joy in his mother's womb. Anytime we call on Mary, she always brings us God. And like a good mother, she anticipates our need. The joy of motherhood, right? You know what your kids need ahead of time. Here's the bottle with the formula or the milk that's ready. Here's clean clothes that are ready. Diapers that are ready. Wipies that are ready. Towels that are ready. I've had to change a few for my nephew. I know the routine of this now. I've got the cartoons that are ready. I've got the food that's ready. I've got everything I need so that the moment my kid cries, I've already anticipated and I have ready to go what they need, whatever that may be. If we, who are sinful and fallible, can do that beautifully for our children, how much more beautifully does she who is immaculate do that for us? So when we call Mary, Mom, be with me, she anticipates what she needs and brings us her son always and forever. We have very good, loving, non-Catholic brothers and sisters. We have very good, loving Catholics that are kind of, you know, lapsed in their faith. And again, guilty party thereof, still making up for it, Lord. And many times, out of a good place, out of a kind place, a concerned place, there is an opposition to the devotion to Our Lady. Because typically speaking, majoritally speaking, there's always outliers, statistics is full of outliers, but majoritally speaking, the concern is we Catholics are giving undue concentration and devotion and prayer and attention to someone who is not God. And therefore it's a detraction from the relationship we're supposed to be having with God. And so a great outcry against Our Lady is actually just, quite honestly, misdirected or misinformed devotion to our Lord. And so what helps us then is to understand with clarity the truth of it, to see how it is that our mother is bringing us God and why we can go to her in confidence and devotion and know nothing we do with her and for her and to her and by her and receive from her is ever apart from her son, but the opposite is a magnification of God's glory and grace. She's the moon that reflects the sun. So then we just look at 
how does our Lord refer to mom? Well, first of all, he refers to her as mom. And the fourth commandment is to honor our mother and our father. And so when he at the cross, agonizingly gasping for breath, dying in one of the most horrific ways we have invented to kill people, and we have invented quite a few, the latest Star Wars of Boba Fett and all those sequel movies, I mean, whoosh. But he gives us Mary as mother. We are commanded to honor our parents. To choose not to do so is to choose to be disobedient to our heavenly parent. And so from the get-go, our honor and our devotion is obedience and love to God. And to do the opposite is the opposite. Then look at Mary. One of the titles that is given to her, one of the things about her, she is the Immaculate Conception conceived without sin, has never sinned. And one of the outcries against that then is that that detracts from the sacrifice of the cross, that God saves and seeks to save everyone universally through the cross. So if you've taken away a person, his sacrifice is incomplete, universal, and that is a profound insult to the sacrifice of God. Fair point, except what does God say and Mary say? God, through his messenger, says, Hail, full of grace. And the Greek word there is katomine. So two points of note. He does not say, Hail Mary. He says, Hail, full of grace. It's a title, like saying the king or the queen, God rest her soul. She is titled as full of grace. If you are full of grace, you cannot have sin within you. Kerry Katomine, Luke is very careful with his language, and he uses differentiations when regards to grace in Scripture. And when it comes to Mary, uses a word that is not used with other pe people, Kerry Katomine, which refers to the fact that she has been full of grace from the beginning in the past, through the present, in perpetuity to the future. God himself is saying she is without sin. When she goes to visit Elizabeth and Elizabeth sings her praises, what does Mary say? I glorify God. My spirit rejoices in the Lord my Savior. The crucifix acts in two ways. One, we who are sinful, we inherit original sin. Thank you, Adam and Eve. God be with you both. And then we choose to sin by our own volition. We fall in the mud. Jesus picks us out of it and cleans us off. Before she ever can step foot in the mud, Jesus keeps her from walking into it. In both cases, he is Savior. It detracts nothing from the cross but instead demonstrates that the cross is not stuck in one singular moment in time. It is an eternal offering, offered to he who is eternal and has all of time within him. And so the grace is one of that transpired to past, present, future, which is how we at this church, every Mass, get to be at Calvary because we are united to that eternal offering.
Mary is the mother of God. And again, the decry is, well, you're saying that there's a goddess who birthed the triune God, a goddess that preceded God. You're denouncing his divinity, his eternity, him being the God. I am. Fair point, except Jesus chooses to be born man. He who is the second person of the Trinity, the Word in the beginning was the Word, incarnates and takes on a full human nature of which Mary is the mother. If I say Mary is not his mom, not the mother of God, I am saying Jesus is not God. He's not divine. He's just some dude. And then what have I been doing with my life? To assert that she is the mother of God is to assert that Jesus is both truly human and divine. That the eternal second person of the Trinity has truly taken on in fullness a hundred percent human nature. One person, two natures. And so the assertion of her being the mother is not goddess. She's only a woman, only a person. All she can do and has done and will do is only empowered and possible by God's grace. She is a creature. And she has been given the particular grace to be the mother. It's an affirmation of our Lord. Mary, queen of heaven and earth, if she's not queen, He's not king. In ancient times, if you are royalty, your family is royalty. If I am the king, my mother is queen mother. If I attack the title of mom, I attack the title of our Lord. Everything about our mother, you can go through the litany of every title that is given to her, but they all demonstrate the two profound facts. It all starts with God, and it all ends with God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Everything given to her comes from, made possible by His grace, nothing apart from Him. And everything she says yes to leads back to Him. We then have the assurance that when He gives us Mom, He is giving us She who comes from him and leads to him. And if we are trying to love our Lord so beautifully and so profound that we want to make ourselves his servant, wash the feet as he does, be on the cross as he is, who better to learn from than the one who did it beautifully, immaculately, perfectly, who without fault and failing, by God's grace, lived out the yes. Behold the handmaid, be it done unto me. I'm running out of time. I'm long-winded. I apologize. Brevity is not a virtue I've mastered. To our point, then, the wedding feast of Cana. Jesus, we know, by the way, that Jesus wants relationships with us because what's the very first miracle he does publicly? A wedding. There's like no more on the nose. It's like, all right, God, I, get, I know I'm slow, but like that's really on the nose. I get it. 
public miracle, wedding and wine. So I don't just want a family relationship with you. I want us to rejoice and have just a splendid time. Go to the wedding feast of Cana. Mary comes up to her son because she's a good, dutiful, attentive mother who is concerned not just for her son's well-being, but the well-being of everybody else around her. And she notes, hey, son, you know how you brought that, like, football team with you of all these hairy, ragged men? Yeah, it turns out they're out of wine. And in our day and age, that's kind of a big thing because weddings go on for days. And this will be an embarrassment to them. This will be even hurtful or shameful for them. And so I am bringing to you the needs of others, like a good attentive mother, to you, my son, that you may help them. Jesus says two things. He says, woman, why do you bring this to me? My time has not yet come. We then think two things. One, he's brushing her off. Two, he's disrespecting her. And we see this a lot also in scripture, that a lot of times people will point out scripture verses where it looks like Jesus is dis disrespecting our mother, and then, hey, how important can she be? Because look at how our Lord treats her. But again, context, read it within the light of the entirety of scripture, and how does our Lord approach? Hey, blessed are you, or, or blessed is the womb that you've come from. Rather, blessed be the one who does the will of my heavenly Father. Who did the will of the heavenly Father? Mom. And so he's affirming, no, 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 she's not great just because she happened to be the biological product that gives me a body. She's great because she perfectly has been doing the will of my father. Hey, your mother's here, and so are your cousins and friends and people from all the, your hometown. Who is my mother? Who are my family? The ones who do the will of my father. Who does it beautifully? mom it's affirmation because they are content to think that the joy of mom is joy by association she just happens to be associated with jesus just happens to be his mom and that's all the good that's there which is incredibly disrespectful she's dignified and she glorifies magnifies the glory of god with all her life so he goes then woman and our impetus is to think like Incredibles, which, by the way, spectacular movie. Both makes fun of and pays beautiful homage to superheroes. And as someone who has more comic books than the bishop needs to know, don't tell him, loved it. And there's a part in the movie, Frozone, woman, where is my super suit? And we think, oh man, that's like, I mean, it's funny, but mm, you should not be talking to your wife that way. So we hear our Lord say woman, and that's kind of our thought, like, wow, that's, ugh. except... Who is first the woman, the woman of all? Eve, the mother of all, that from all descendants were supposed to come. It's a title, a title of profound respect and a title that Eve loses in her sin. And if Jesus is the new Adam, and he is, who's the new Eve? The one that we hear in the Proto-Evangelium in the third chapter of Genesis that will crush the head of the viper and whose seed will bring about the restoration of creation and humanity. Mom. He is giving her a title of profound respect and love. And then he tells her, 
I'm God. I know. And I am in union, perfect union, with the other two persons of the Trinity, including the Spirit. And I know that very Spirit dwelt on Simeon. And when you presented me at the temple, told you very clearly, Golgotha's coming. And when it comes, you're going to suffer. And Mom, I've been able to spend these last 30 years with you in the privacy of a beautiful, ordinary family life. And it's been wonderful. And I am telling you, as God, as the Messiah, as the Savior, it isn't time yet. We still have time to share an ordinary life, to live the ordinary joys, time together before I walk to the cross. And if I do this, that time is over. You lose me for me to go give myself up for others. And what does mom say? She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Mom loves God so beautifully and perfectly that she presents herself fully in union to the cross. And she loves us so beautifully and perfectly. She sends her son there for us who kill him. That is her love for us. So when we are praying to our mother and going to our mother, it is meant to be as a child to their mother. And when we forget that faith and the commandments and the doctrines, their work, their obligation, I'm sick of it. When we remember it, the rosary is now a photo book that I'm sitting with my mother as she walks me through all the moments of her son's life and talking to me about him and telling me the stories and helping me to know and love him. When the mass is work, I can't wait for it to be done. When it's the wedding, I can't wait to give myself away to receive and then spend the whole day with the one I'm in relation with. This is why our mom leads us to adoration. Because it drives the point home of how to love. Because we do nothing. I have been struggling to be open and honest and contrite. I have been struggling with my holy hours quite often for a while, for a long time, because I approach it in the full sense of love. I have to earn it. I have to deserve it. I have to merit it. I have to do something. And so I bring my rosaries and I bring my lexios and I bring my the liturgy of the hours, which is all my way of just saying, Your Excellency, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Please don't hurt me. And it doesn't feel like it's enough. It feels like I'm just checking off the boxes. So one day, St. Thomas More, I have done my rosary and my lexio and my liturgy of the hours, and I go straight to God and I'm like, okay, I've got a half hour left. What am I supposed to do? And immediately after that question, the vacuum goes off and the parish staff begin vacuuming the entire narthex and the church. And the last half hour is nothing but white noise.
but I smiled. It's like, ah, oh, I get it. You just want me to be with you. I don't have to think anything. I don't have to do anything. I just get to be with you and find the joy and the delight in wasting time with the one I love who delights to waste his time with me. When we marry, when we're in love, when we have kids, when we have friends, many points in the relationship, it is talk and listen. And many points in the relationship, it's let's go do things together. But at a point that love matures, and we just are overjoyed to be with the one we love. Let's just sit on the couch together. Let's just be with each other. I don't have to say anything. You don't have to say anything. I'm just with you. And everyone else thinks that's such a waste of time. And I think it's the most precious time in the world. Because I get to be with you. Do you as parents not cherish the time your children fall asleep on your arms? Can you not be doing a million infinite different things and they're slobbering all over your clothes? But you get to be with them. Adoration teaches us that love is a gift freely given from God. And our joy is to just be with him. It teaches us that love is delighting in being and wasting time with the one we love. And if my faith life is a chore, that's a waste of time, which means I am saying he's a waste of time. But if we approach the faith in the eyes and the perspective of relationship, it is the greatest hour of my day in tandem with the Mass. And the whole rest of my day is shaped and flows from that time I spent with Him. How we are servants and warriors is to love. To love so beautifully and perfectly that we see it as a gift and a privilege to lay down our lives for the ones we love. As husbands and wives do for each other at their wedding, as parents do for their children, as children are privileged to do for their parents, as Our Lady does for our Lord at the presentation in the cross, as our Lord does for us at the cross and the Eucharist. But if we are approaching love as something that is earned and deserved, if we're approaching love as work and chore only, we miss it. And the whole thing falls apart. But when it's humility, when it's gift, it's grown. And his invitation is to just be with him let him give himself to us and then show us how to respond. And if we are struggling to live a life like that, he gives us mom who adored him every day of her life into perpetuity. That's the offering. That's the gift. That's love. 
to drive the final nail home, and then I promise I'll stop talking. You can just tell people when you go to confession, hey, my penance was I listened to this really long-winded priest, and they'll be like, we know who you're talking about. You're good. Just, just go. Here's absolution. God himself describes heaven as a home, a home with many rooms, a home that is a feast, a home that is with our Father. Home is not meant to be a chore, although we do do chores because we've got to keep it clean, but it is not simply chore. It is not simply work. It is not simply duty. Those all flow from, I am resting and spending time with the ones I love and sharing it with them. If that is the goal of which he is preparing us for, does it not then make sense that he would have us practice that, live that, here on earth? where I just sit in the home of God and spend time with the one I love. And if I ever struggle with that, Mom, help me. Bring me your son. Anticipate my needs and help me to love him as you do. That I with joy may also say and live, behold, the sinful, fallible, imperfect priest, an imperfect son of my heavenly Father. May it be done unto me according to your word. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Have a blessed night. May St. Joseph see you safely home and a grace-filled rest. Thank you.